Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah. This is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Romero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am indeed Brandon, as if you couldn't guess. Wednesday, December 10th, 2014 is the date. It is 10 p.m. back east, 7 p.m. out west, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and it's a big night for us here at Brandon's Buzz as we get set to celebrate the 100th episode of this little ragtag ramshackle operation. And I'm telling you, I couldn't be more thrilled that you decided to tag along with us on a special night. And I genuinely couldn't be more thrilled with the guest that has hurled himself into the Brandon's Buzz spotlight on such a momentous occasion. You know, if you're a regular listener of this program, you've no doubt heard me say many times that I started this project nearly six years ago with a list of roughly 25 names of people with whom I had been pipe dreaming of having an actual conversation, never actually expecting to be able to check off as many as one of those names. Fast forward some 70 months and through names like Gordon Thompson. True story, when the fabulous Gordon Thompson, he was my second guest uh, in January of 2009, when he called me personally with a very enthusiastic yes, I just thought I was going to fall down and die. And now I look at this list of 100 Brandon's Buzz episodes as I speak to you, And I see names, I see Linda Dano, I see Pam Long, I see Nia Peoples, and I still have to pinch myself. You know, at least a few of those names on that original list have long since shuffled off of this mortal coil. I think of the great Paul Rausch, I think of the glorious Dixie. So at least on this particular plane, I will sadly never be able to cross every name off of that list. But nonetheless, this calendar year has been a spectacular one in pursuit of that goal, as I've had the blessed opportunity to chat with not only folks like Nate Berkus and the extraordinary Hillary Bailey Smith, who is the greatest that ever was, as far as I'm concerned, but also with one of my all-time heroes, a man who has no real idea, even though I told him repeatedly and to the point of inducing nausea during our conversation and in our private correspondence before and after same, uh, how much of an influence he and his brilliant work have had on what I hope to accomplish in at least the best moments of Brandon's buzz. You know, I grew up in a very small town in the Texas Panhandle, in a town so small that television, and at least for me and my best friend, the daytime soap opera, was by necessity one of the primary sources of entertainment. And in those days, I lived not only for the next new episode of One Life to Live and Guiding Light in Santa Barbara, but for learning all I could about the people, both the folks I could see every day on screen and the folks behind those folks. 
which basically means that I live for my guest tonight. Because for much of my high school career, that would be 1990 to 1994, in case you were curious, uh, my weekly routine would be as follows. On most Tuesday afternoons after last class, I would walk the mile, give or take, from the campus up the hill to the local grocery store to grab the brand new issue of TV Guide. The store usually refreshed the magazines on Tuesdays. My store did. Uh, and then I would walk another mile or so down toward the other end of town where I lived with said TV Guide keeping me company the entire way. The first page I would always turn to, always, 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 Michael Logan's deliciously dishy soaps column, which even though it was only a dinky page, and back then with the magazine's diminutive digest-like size, that adjective is especially apt, uh, was always a fun, feisty, revelatory, relevant, electrifyingly well-written piece of pop journalism and which not only had its finger on the exact pulse of the soap world's goings-on, but in its greatest moments, which were numerous, uh, had the canniest way of literally setting the news agenda for the week that lay ahead in soaps. You know, After a multi-year stint at Soap Opera Digest where he penned the lively Logan's outtakes, Logan took over as TV Guide's primary soaps reporter exactly 25 years ago this fall, in September of 1989, when each network had four dramas on the air and the soap genre as a whole had gotten red-hot all over again. And owing to the fact that the magazine found its way onto most every living room coffee table in America in those pre-internet days, but also to the fact that Michael wrote with such a bold, brilliant voice and from such a scintillating, singular point of view, that lone page became, in very short order, the single most important press outlet in the whole of Soapland, a title that Logan Soap's column has held for a large chunk of the last quarter century. Part rabble-rouser, part candid critic, part rabidly tenacious teller of truth, no matter how shrouded in spin, and part brilliantly personable conversationalist, Michael Logan is just the king, people. He is just the king. And, you know, I see no, absolutely no point in claiming to believe anything to the contrary. Even in a journalistic landscape that has become increasingly crowded, with professionals and pretenders to the throne all jockeying for position on the exact same field of play, Logan remains the pace setter. He is the staunchest supporter of the entire genre of daytime television, and whether those who make daytime television care to admit it or not, he might just be the greatest friend the soaps ever had. You know, I consider myself Logan's biggest fan, and that's a title that I'm quite sure I'll have to fight a number of my peers for, and believe me, I suffer from no lack of confidence about my ability to retain that particular crown. And because I saw this anniversary creeping up on the calendar, I decided to write Michael a ridiculously effusive note just to gauge his interest and to see if there was any chance in the world that he might be interested in popping in here for a conversation about his incredible adventures in soap journalism. I had stumbled across his email address earlier this year while perusing an online listing of television critics, and even though I had no idea how valid or viable that address was, or if it was indeed Michael's address at all, I convinced myself, as happens so often when I decide to approach a guest for this show, that I ultimately had nothing to lose, and that the worst thing that would come of writing one of my true all-time heroes, a rambling missive, would be that he would think me a fool and then delete it immediately, never to give it another moment's thought. Indeed, the exact opposite happened. Logan wrote me back nearly immediately, thinking me profusely for my interest in commemorating his anniversary and indicating affirmatively that he would be honored to join me right here for a conversation. And indeed, you would be quite correct if you believed that I was ready right then and there to just fall down and die of sheer giddy. So here's the deal. Michael and I taped what you're about to hear 
uh, a couple of months ago or so, and I have been holding on to it until now because I wasn't quite ready to just toss it out into the world because it felt like this little jewel of whose existence only I was hip to, and because I wanted this introduction and this entire presentation to be utterly perfect, as would only befit the giant with whom I shared the conversation contained herein. You know, I feel like Michael has spent an entire quarter of a century giving me the very best journalism he was capable of creating, and so I feel like at the very least, in these fleeting moments, when our respective paths temporarily intersect, Michael's and mine, uh, he deserves nothing less than my best in return. So we had a little flown, we had a little phone blip part of the way into our conversation, and when we managed to reconnect a few minutes after that, we didn't quite pick up exactly where we had left off. Furthermore, as I was putting this all together, it became clear to me that the first part of our conversation and the second part of our conversation both had what I felt was an eminently satisfying arc to them. So for that reason, I decided that rather than try to just awkwardly smush the two disparate halves of our uh, conversation together into some odd blob, I would just present this in two parts. Part two of this conversation you will get tomorrow night, same bat time, same bat channel. Stay tuned for all the pertinent details at the very end of this episode. And part one you will get right now. In the early going of our chat, my primary focus was on learning how Michael made his way to TV Guide in the first place and how he feels now about a certain 1992 interview that took him and his column to the next level, an interview with a legend that still likely stands as the most important, most impactful piece of work to ever bear his name. I would love to hear from this one. So. Super. So let's set the table here. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where would you go to school? Let's get that stuff out of the way. Well, I was born in San Francisco and went to uh, San Francisco State and San Jose State uh, and came down to Los Angeles uh, and went to work for a PR firm that was really quite successful at the time. It was my first job, and I got to write press releases and bios on the stars. We had some great talent that was there, John Travolta, George Burns, and Sammy Davis Jr. was still with us, the great Loretta Lynn, the Pointer Sisters, I mean, really fantastic people. And I got snapped up by one of the publicists at the company, Ronnie Chasen, who was just the absolute greatest publicist ever. And uh, Ronnie was killed about, gosh, I think it's going on four years ago now in Beverly Hills on a very notorious murder and it's a very sad thing but she was um and they still she, haven't solved that right they still haven't figured out what happened there, right? they, oh they claim to have solved it but uh, it, the circumstances are so suspicious and their proof is so funky and it's uh, I, uh those of us who loved her dearly don't want to accept any of this but she was just a great 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 person and she's um you know like those people in life that give you your start she changed my life and taught me everything and uh, i'll be eternally grateful for that and simultaneous to that i got to know weirdly as there are no accidents in the universe i got to know some of the stars of the young and the restless and general hospital and i remembered hanging out with them how much soaps meant to my mom when i was growing up i mean she was devoted as the world turns and general hospital and I knew that there was just great love and magic attached to the soap genre, and there was a cool thing and nothing to be snooty about. So I actually segued at that point out of PR into magazine writing, and I was writing about the soaps, and I did three really wonderful years. I think it was three, give or take, with Soap Buffer Digest um, before before TV Guide came along. And I will always owe Lynn Leahy big time there, not only because she gave me a whole lot of terrific assignments, but it, it was... Also, Lynn, who 
saw that I had a voice and asked me to do something with that voice, which was the Logan's Outtakes column. Which, that's really kind of what put me on the soap map. So uh, that's how all that played out. And how funny, because, you know, I, I assume, like everybody I'm sure listening, or who will be listening to this conversation, that you were a soap fan from birth, and it sounds like that really wasn't the case at all. Well, you know, I, I had so many of the people who do what I do, uh, you know, one of the common things is our parent, you know, our moms watch the soaps. So I was aware of them. I was aware of the power. I was aware of, of how, you know, important they were to my mom. So I kind of had a vicarious sense of them without having really watched them myself, although I do remember some of the characters from those days and, uh, you know, just have a very fond feeling for it, but it wasn't until later that I got into it. And as as a a result, I kind of have like a black hole in my... awareness of soaps. I mean, people, when they talk about, oh, for example, people talk about Texas, that, you know, the show Texas, that's, that's not in my, that's not in my brain at all, you know. I mean, I, I kind of woke up a little bit after that and uh, still, so did I, hell, I just did my, you know, just hit the 25-year mark at TV Guide, so I've, I've got a lot of soap under my belt, but I'm, uh, you know, I, by no means someone that, uh, you know, goes Back much further than that. It's you know it's kind of How weird because you know people so remember stuff and talk about stuff that I wish I knew. Sure. About, that I wish I seen. <laughs> that I wish I was part of. And you know, I kind of feel left out. But. Uh. And you know it's it's so funny. It sounds like you didn't really set out to be a journalist at all, much less the most influential journalist to ever cover your industry. I mean, it sounds like you you tripped into this totally by accident. Well. <sighs> Yeah, I guess so. You know, I mean, it's like, I think lives are kind of like that. I mean, you could have the greatest intentions in the world. You know, I actually studied theater in college, and I was very into directing and did a lot of theater directing in Los Angeles when I first got here. But I found it all kind of feeds the same drive to direct actors in a play and to get them to tell you interesting things in an interview are kind of the same thing. So I never really thought of much of this as, as going far afield. It all sort of had a weird through line. I love actors. I love them so much. Even when they drive me crazy, I love them. And <laughs> I find them fascinating and a really fun bunch of people to talk to and find out how they do what they do. And so it, it all sort of, weirdly for me, it all makes sense, but it, it does probably have a few leaps and bounds in there that might seem a little bizarre, but it happened. Okay, let me tell you the story that I've invented in my head of how you came to TV Guide full-time as a columnist, and then you can either debunk it entirely or you can flesh it out. So... Basically, as I have it, you were toiling away at at, uh, Soap Opera Digest having fun with Logan's outtakes, and you were freelancing at other publications, including TV Guide, I believe. And uh, my sense is that the powers that be at TV Guide got wind that Rupert Murdoch was planning to jump into the weekly game with his own soap-centric magazine, and TV Guide decided that they, too, as a weekly publication devoted to television, should beef up their soaps coverage as well. And, of course, you know, soaps had gotten red hot again with, uh, you know, Patch and Kayla, uh, Cruz and Eden, Josh and Riva. You know, a series of super couples really kind of changed the game again and, and revitalized that whole genre. And, you know, uh, TV Guide already had a soap column that Alan Carter was writing, and then they decided to add a weekly recap section whose byline carried your name for the first few weeks. Then, maybe a bit serendipitously, Terry Lester decided in the late summer of 1989 that not only was he going to walk off The Young and the Restless, but he was going to scorch every square inch of earth on his way out the door, and you got the magic exit interview, and TV Guide didn't run it in their soaps column. They ran it on the front page of their news section with a 20-point headline, and uh, you know, all of a sudden TV Guide realizes that they've captured lightning in a bottle with you. They decide that you're their guy, and Alan Carter's gone, and all of a sudden two weeks later, 
The Soaps column now carries your name and goes on to become the single most important press outlet just by dint of the magazine's broad reach at that time for the entire industry. I mean, uh, how much of that is just me pipe-dreaming and how much of that is rooted in fact? Well, first of all, you're scaring me that you know this much. (laughs) (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) I forgot all half of this, at least. No, here's – you're – it's a very different world now. You know, I write, a, I, I mean, now I write a story and two seconds later you could post it on the internet. Back sure, of course. In the Fred Flintstone era when I started at TV Guide, <laughs> literally this column had to be filed six weeks in advance. Wow. And not only that, but because they were based in Philadelphia, in uh, Radnor, Pennsylvania, outside Philly, and I live in L.A., I had to actually stick the column in the mail, which actually added <laughs> a seventh week to it. There wasn't even fax back then. <laughs> this is but no faxing. Federal Express. I think Federal Express had just come in or something like that. I don't. I'm, I'm losing track of time here. But it was all like you know, it was we were all just hammer and chiseling it back then. How and um, literally, I had a six week lead time. Now with TV Guide, it's pretty remarkable what's happened. We can file something as late as Friday and it's in your mailbox Tuesday. And wow. some people actually, depending on where in the country you are, actually are getting subscriptions on Monday. So that's the difference in that. So what had happened was, is Alan Carter, marvelous dear friend of mine, and did me the favor of a lifetime by moving on to People magazine, <laughs> and the job came up. I've done 25 years. Alan did a few years. I don't remember. Four or five many, years then, anyway, yeah. Yeah, at least. And then uh, there was a lady, Mary Alice Kellogg, who had it before then. So TV Guide has actually been the only mainstream publication that's had a place for soaps and respected that part of the entertainment world for really quite a long and admirable period of time there. Sure. The job passed to me. I had to audition with a few other people at the time. But what had happened is before Alan even announced he was moving on. The summer before, I had gone with my dear friend Pat Sellers, who's a great, great writer, and the two of us got in a rental car. We were going to stay with her in New York, and we drove out to uh, Radnor to meet people. She knew people, and I got to meet the editors, and we just sort of hung out for the day, and I made my presence known and started pitching a little something here and there and just got in that door that way. And then when the job came up, they already knew me, so that was great. And they had actually put me completely separately on those recaps, which, listen, let's face it, any monkey can write a recap. So, I mean, it wasn't like, yeah, many do, you know. So it's like, it wasn't yeah, but like... You know, what? you know what? They had a great voice, though. They had a great point of view. I mean, it was, uh, when they first started those recaps, you were, you were spot on with that. And it was a great innovation for that magazine at that time, because they hadn't done anything like that. Yeah. Well, you know, that's what sort of got the ball rolling. Alan was then simultaneously going on. And as I said, I did have to do the um, audition, but I did get the job. And then, as I recall, the Terry Lester interview had happened after I'd gotten the column. But because we had that massive gap and the news section could be printed much more quickly, although back then it was probably a week or so. So the very notorious Terry Lester interview happened. (laughs) And I think there was a couple of others. I forget now. But I think Days of Our Lives had done one of their purges. Cast purges. The (laughs) old guard. All the old guard was laid off. And I think that was one of the stories I did in the news section I think Debbie Morgan might have quit All My Chill or something. I don't know. I'm remembering these. This is all coming back to me now. But at any rate, so there was a few of those things popped up in news. And then by the time the column kicked in, then we were open for business. But I did have to test for it and fought hard for it because I wanted it very, very much. Because growing up, TV Guide was it, man. 
I could not wait for that issue to come in the mail. I devoured it. I underlined all the movie stars' names. I went to buy mom and said, you know, who's that? I mean, I studied. That's how I learned, you know, about movies in Hollywood and learned all my shit is like from the TV guide. And, you, know, just you know, I'll tell you something. I am still like that to this day. I have plastic boxes after plastic box in my garage full of old TV guides, full of them. I'm still like to that to this Horton's, day. I love uh, that magazine. TV guide version. Yeah. <laughs> I love that magazine. It, it is a fabulous magazine. It always has been. Well, I remember how epic, how magnificent it was to get that fall preview issue. That was you bet. Just the greatest thing, and that's when... It was like um, a brick. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's when my column started in the fall preview, so it was kind of one of those happy things. You know, I just grew up loving it, and, I, and, and it all... There it was. I got to work there and still there and still feeling greatly appreciated, and I love it, and not a day is ever, ever boring, which is the greatest... <laughs> blessing in any career. Every day in this business brings new surprises. Some of them not so great. I'm sure we'll get into Chuck Pratt. But, <laughs> but it's never dull and it's really frequently quite trippy. And, you know, TV Guide from day one has been great about giving me all kinds of assignments covering primetime too. So I have a sure. wide array of things that I get to write about. But the soaps are my first and last love. I mean, even when they let me down and toy with my affection and <laughs> devastate me with their stupid decisions. It's still a great love affair and uh, see no reason why it won't continue. You know, you mentioned on Twitter a few weeks ago that Terry Lester came to regret that infamous interview that he gave you at that time. You know, it's it's so funny to me. Some of these some of these people, you know, I was going to ask you later, and I will ask you later, about some of the more infamous quotable moments in your column, but you know, you wonder some of these guys, and, and, and it was really a, a heat-of-the-moment thing that, that you can see how he came to regret that in later years. And he did go on to Santa Barbara and to what I thought was some really lovely work at As the World Turns, even though it suddenly sort of aborted there. So it wasn't like the end of his career. Sure. But he was leaving a show, which is a vital statistic, which is something to report on, and his reasons were pretty extreme. So I think that's a different situation than, um, oh, if you just got an actor that's just bitching and moaning and miserable and, you know, but when you're, when you're quitting a show, when you're quitting a show over the issue, when you are a remarkable actor as he was, I mean, nobody to this day does what Terry could do. And from a top show, it was a huge story. So yeah, you let him talk. And I frankly, at this point, can't remember if I did him a favor and censored him a bit, but we do that. I do that all the time with actors. You know, there are times, especially when you have developed the kind of trust that I am lucky to have developed with a lot of people. Sometimes people get a little too free and you want to cover their asses. No story is worth losing a job over. No story is worth offending the wrong people. But then there are also times when you've got to let the truth tellers tell the truth. This is a very political business. And rare is the person who steps forth and has the balls to say what Terry said. It just doesn't happen much, you know? I mean, sure. it took canceling all my children and Lucci putting an extra special chapter in her paperback <laughs> edition of her memoir for her to talk this shit, you know? I mean, it, it, people don't do it, and wisely so, you know? I mean, we all need to stay employed. We don't want to be pissing the wrong people off. But, you know, I mean, the least, most harmless thing can piss somebody off. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've pissed Ken Corday off for, you know, just breathing, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, the world we live in. 
but as you allude to, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's a big difference between somebody like a Kim Zimmer who needs to just blow off some steam every now and again and, uh, you know, a Terry Lester who is very angry in the heat of the moment and goes on to, if not uh, destroy his career, because he certainly didn't do that, but he uh, certainly put a chink in the armor. Zimmer, though, I mean, there's nobody more delicious to interview than Kim Zimmer. I have no question um, about it. Her reputation was for shooting off her mouth and shooting off her foot. You know, I mean, it just—that's it, just—that was business as usual. So I don't think it was quite the same thing. Anything she might come up with, and boy, there were some star-spangled doozies from Zimmer. God, I miss her. Oh, Jesus! I was just thinking, you know, it's just like—I mean, none. I was so loved, loved, loved Jeannie Cooper and Beverly McKenzie and sure, those great old broads. They made the job so fun. Connie Ford, man, I got, I you got bet. up the nerve to interview her one time, and I survived it. You know, I mean, it, it, uh, <laughs> it, those are the people that just, when I look back, I just think, God, I'm so lucky to have got to know some of these people and talk to them and get them to say something they might regret. I mean, that's the best. I'll, I'll always, always getting Beverly McKenzie's only exit interview when she took a hike you know, that's guiding true. life. To me, it was like, I could have retired right then, and, you know, things would have been fine, because that, you know, that was something. It's so funny you had mentioned that, you know, if I were you, and Lord love a duck, I'm not you, heaven knows, but if I were you, and, you know, someone were to ask me as you, what would you mark as your finest hour as a journalist? I'm here to tell you, I wouldn't even pause, I wouldn't even hesitate before invoking the name of Beverly McKenzie in your full 1992 interview with her, which I have to tell you, in terms of the soap industry, remains the greatest. I mean, you, you know, you've had some great conversations and great interviews in that specific lane over the years, but in terms of the nuts and bolts of that industry and that genre of entertainment, I'm not sure I've ever read a better piece than that, and I'm not sure I ever will. Thank you. I mean, and that was Beverly. I mean, man, she didn't talk, but when she did, holy shit, <laughs> holy shit. <laughs> so interesting about the people that talk the least in this business have the most interesting stuff to say. I mean, you get Jane Elliott going, and there's nothing better. Tony Geary, sure. you know, the, the private people that don't chew the fat that often just really uh, deliver when they do. And Beverly was just the best we've ever had. And the fact that she never won a damn Emmy, you know, sometimes for her own fault for not choosing to submit herself, but even when she sure. did, I mean, she never, you know, she didn't. I mean, that. so whenever anybody gets worked up over the Emmys, and Lord knows I do too, you know, I mean, I always think like, you know, our greatest actress never got one. You know, it's like looking at the Oscars and going, Cary Grant never fucking won an Oscar. You know, Greta Garbo never won an Oscar. That just always puts all these things in perspective. But she, and, yeah, she you know, was. for those who don't remember the story, I mean, Beverly was the star of Guiding Light at that point. I mean, she, everything, yeah. pretty much all the main stories, uh, if not revolved around her, certainly featured her as a player, and uh, you know she had this very obscure clause in her contract that allowed her to uh, quit the show on basically eight weeks' notice, and uh, she decided to invoke that after you know making it clear that she was increasingly unhappy on the set and, and having those testimonies fall on deaf ears, I guess, and she walked off the show and gave you the scoop. It was a shocker. You couldn't get your mind around it. So how could this be? How is this possible? Of course, the people at Guiding Light were saying the same damn thing. They're suddenly going, check that contract. She's got what? You know, it was weird. I don't even think I understood the time. She had like eight weeks, no, whatever the hell it was. But she also could then take vacation, which she did, and somehow she could literally walk out. It was there on paper. Nobody stopped her. Nobody could sue her. You know, and she, she seemed to take perverse delight in that. I loved it. At the same time, I hated it. I think the great quote she gave you was something to the effect of, 
if they're upset, it's because for once someone beat them at their own game. Because oh, you know, exactly. for years, exactly. Exactly. for years, well, they could they could fire actors at will on a thirteen week basis, and now this was an actor turning the tables on them and firing them essentially. Exactly, and that's just as true today as it was then and always has been. You know, these contracts are never about the actor. You might, as you get more famous, get it up to 26 weeks or sure. something like that, but I don't know, I can't remember the last time somebody was crowing about their contract, but I remember, who's it, Drake Hogeston? Was he the first one to get a four-year contract or something? I don't know, you know, it's like we all know what happened to poor Drake, you know, four-year contract. I mean, it's just... You just you're not protected, and um, and that's that's the business. So for an actor to get them back, then it occasionally happens on sort of lesser levels. I mean, Tristan Rogers walking from GH and going over to YNR when he wasn't on contract. I mean, that's the new turmoil of this era where actors are supposed to be so desperate to work that you can get everybody to be non-contractees is that you really don't have them. And, you know, it doesn't really bite the shows in the butt too often, but when it does, it does. You know, I, I can only it. imagine and that. And it was that, a huge uh, loss. I mean, it's like, you know. No I, question. I, it was devastating to the show. And that combined with James Riley walking out shortly thereafter to go take over Days, and, and it just it, it kind of uh, a whole bunch of people descended on that show at once, and it never fully recovered for the entirety of its run. It ran for another 15 years, but it never fully recovered from the upheaval of that single year, I don't think. Quite correct, it did not. It's weird when you, you know, look back at all that. You think, like, God, could it have been... <laughs> You know, I don't know. I, I, you know, I think Beverly was Beverly had, had it. You know, and she came out here and she moved to Santa Barbara, Montecito, and I, I actually got to go up and hang with her, for, you know, for a day, which was lovely. And she was fine. She was an odd bird, you know. I mean, the, when you have that much talent, when you give that much in a performance, you just think, well, it must mean the world to her, and it didn't. She was very willing to let it go and did. She was the greatest we had in soaps, but there's no reason she couldn't have been a major movie star. You know, she started out sure. doing fantastic stuff. She was, you know, the replacement for um, Melinda Dillon in the role of Honey and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway. I mean, she was huge before her soap stardom, and she seemed ready to cut the cord. I didn't get any you know, sense you... she was sorry she ever did it. She came back and did a brief thing on General Hospital, but that was just to keep her uh, medical Health insurance, insurance going. Yeah. You know, but she, you know, she was fine with it. We weren't. How Im- how important to her was, you know, you read that interview, and, you know, she doesn't really come right out and say it, but you get a strong sense that the Emmy snub really irked her somewhere deep inside her soul. Do you think that's, do you think oh, that yeah. played any part at all in, in her deciding to walk off the show, just the fact that the industry didn't really seem to care? I don't think that the Emmy thing had much to do with it, but I think you're quite right that it mattered to her. But when it matters, you don't want to admit it matters, that kind of thing. Sure. <laughs> It's, um, who knows, I didn't know it so well that I could get inside her mind about that, but I did sense that there was a little bit of disgruntlement there, a little bit of hurt that, you know, you hadn't won the big prize. That's actors. Look how much when Meryl Streep, you know, Meryl Streep so wanted that Oscar that she did get for um, Margaret Thatcher. You know, everybody thinks, oh, Meryl Streep gets nominated every year, and she does. But as it wasn't talked about at the time, she hadn't won for like 30 years or something. Sure. The best in our business need that reinforcement. You know, actors are needy. That's what they do what they do. It's just part of the psyche. And you can put on your bravado and claim you don't give a shit, but I think most do. You know, Maybe that, Jane Elliott Beverly... doesn't give a shit. <laughs> 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 she was just pissed she had to get dressed up and come to the Emmys to lose, you know. But it's like she didn't want to do that. Frank Valentini is the one who submitted her. She did not do it. 
She would have rather gone to the <laughs> dentist than uh, go to the Emmys. And so maybe she's our sole exception. But uh, <laughs> I love actors. I just do. I mean, it's always been such a thing. And the best part of doing this as long as I have is, and it would never happen in prime time or movie world or any other part of showbiz, but there's just such a community, such a camaraderie among the people in the silk world, especially those who've done it for the long haul, you know, I mean, it's such a cool club, and sure, we all kind of been in the trenches for so long, and seen so much, and seen the ups, and seen the downs, and the downs, and the more downs, and, you know, I mean, it, it's a very precious thing, you know, I mean, it's so lovely to see everybody, and I know a couple of months ago I did an interview with Doug Davidson and Mel Scott and Laura Lee Bell about their Blumen Triangle on YNR, and we went to lunch, and, and it was just such a extraordinary thing to just be with people that you've just known for decades. And Of course. We all sort of get it and shared so much of the same experiences, and we had the greatest talk about Laura Lee's dad and how things are different and what's wrong, what's right, and what's, you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's wonderful to have that perspective with people, especially when our business came so close and still, I think, is kind of vulnerable, but, you know, came so close to being extinguished altogether, you know, not sure. so long ago. And you just sort of wonder, like, what happened? You know, like, what, <laughs> how did soap stop becoming so important and so topical? And it's not to say that that's easy to do anymore because so many storylines the big ones have been told it does get harder and harder to break new ground as time goes on but i remember bill bell and agnes nixon and douglas marlin they all saw social issues as just as vital to soaps as the sex and the scandal and the romance it just somehow got all safe and sanitary I and mean, i'm still cursing our dear jimmy riley for leaving us i mean he was the only one in these modern times with two balls i remember when you know god toward the end there when he had that vincent that hermaphrodite have sex with his own father and got pregnant and what's her face dr eve botched julian's penis surgery and dick wound up reattached upside down you know i mean I, I still don't know how riley got away with that shit and i know that he was not everybody's cup of tea, nor was Passions, but it was a total hoot to be around all that stuff when that was going down, you know? I mean, God, I miss him, too. He's the funniest person on the planet or some planet. <laughs> I mean, I don't think Riley was even from the solar system, but, you know, I mean, they were moving the form somewhere. They were going, like, what can we do that nobody's done? And that doesn't happen so much anymore. That's what made soaps important, at least for the people that got it. And now they're kind of, I mean, I'm still enjoying the hell out of some of them or most of them, but are they important? I can't really say that's true anymore. And the show used to be when you had people that saw that they were important wanting to make them important. You know, I mean, Bill Bell was so magnificent and certainly was powerful enough and successful enough in the business that he could have gone on and conquered primetime, but he was alive in the soap opera form. And... You know, I love that he didn't let the network have a say, which is sure as hell doesn't happen today. I mean, he disregarded focus group research, and frankly, he disregarded the opinions of the fans. He wrote for himself, trusting, like all great artists do, that if it works for me, it's going to work for the public. He would never tolerate the CBS daytime intervention that goes on today. No way. And if he did make a mistake, Bill was the first one to recognize it, and that storyline would be gone by Tuesday. Poof. it just vanished. And that right stuff just – and Bradley's got it. Bradley's got it working within a very different time and a very different system. But I see so much of Bill passed down to Brad. And let me tell you, his dad would be so proud. His dad would be so proud of that guy right now. 
Douglas Morrow and Agnes, you know. I mean, I, I was never a super fan of Agnes's work. I preferred other styles and other sensibilities, but I so greatly admired what she got sure. done with this form. Douglas Marlin did some very bold storytelling. and Claire Labine. And Claire, you know. I mean, the best of Claire. The best of Michael Malone. I think that's one you of bet. the unfortunate things. I think, we're, you know, we're dealing with the return of Chuck Pratt to the <laughs> business, which to me is like letting George W. Bush back in the White House, you know. I mean, it's just... It, it, I just, I got, I just still do not understand what has happened. But more disturbing than that, I think, is that the networks and the chiefs of daytime drama are doing absolutely nothing to grow the next generation, develop the head writers of tomorrow when they need one today. Where is that next generation? I mean, where's, where's, you know, we look back, you had the great arrival of Michael Malone from the world of novels. You had Hogan Sheffer, who in his best years was fantastic, and he came from... Screenwriting, yeah. Screenwriting. How rare are those examples over the course of decades now? You've got to ask, what's, what, what's wrong? Why, why are we so short-sighted? Or, why do we so not give a crap about this business we profess to love and still is doing well enough for the networks that nobody's thinking about the future. And if they had thought about the future, we wouldn't be in the situation now that we are with Y&Rs. This is such an unfortunate thing, and I don't know. Although I will say that I will say that Y&R, to my eye, needs a big change. And uh, you know, for better or worse, big change is certainly coming with the arrival of Chuck Pratt. I mean, it's 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 a show that has been in a rut for. Uh, the past year, certainly, I'm uh, truth be told, much more than just a year. But for the certainly for the past year, it's been stuck in neutral, and it needs a big change, and it's fixing to get one. And I hope to God I'm dead wrong, and millions of others are too, and that uh, Chuck Pratt is exactly the miracle that Y&R needs. That would be the best possible outcome here. But the people who I know it's very fashionable to blame everything <laughs> on Joe Farron Phelps, including the JFK assassination, but. <laughs> The problems you are seeing are with the network as far as storytelling is concerned. Um, no question. Star, plain and simple. And With the um, fact that there are too many hands and, in the pot. Well, and hands that don't know great story. It's not everybody's gift. You don't just inherit it because you got the job. It's very, very special. That's what art is about. You know, Not everybody excels at it. Everybody in kindergarten can make a finger painting, but... That doesn't make everybody an artist, and I think people are in the wrong jobs very often. And they might do other parts of their jobs really super well. Like I think CBS Daytime obviously excels at social media and promotion, and there's been terrific synergy within the network's lineup, and remarkable, remarkable things have happened. But knowing great drama is not their suit. um, (laughs) Or necessarily in their top priorities. Oh, I also feel the great need to mess with Y&R. I know nobody seems to be messing with Brad Bell, and Brad Bell is going along his way doing spectacular stuff. It's hard to believe that those two shows are being done by the same regime at the same <laughs> network. I mean, it's like, that's weird to me. That's weird to me. And especially that they don't look over and see what Brad's doing right and maybe take a cue from that. I tweeted the other day, you know, that it just, I don't know why the hell they didn't have Brad commandeer the problem at Y&R and fix it. Oversee it. Yes, he's got his own show to run, but he clearly knows talent. He clearly knows writing. He clearly knows great story. And why he could not come in considering this is the family business. There's a lot to be salvaging here. 
starting with dad's reputation, for Christ's sake. That, <laughs> sure. you know, why somebody didn't have Brad come in and be the general, be the D-Day chief and come in, staff it, oversee it, hang in there till it's on safe ground. Then you can go back to uh, conquering the world with the bold and the beautiful. <laughs> the, the, you know, the people who can do this are so few. And the cavalier attitude that anybody can do the job is led to its near destruction. <laughs> and that was just all part one, my little chickadees. And I want you to trust me right now. You do not want to miss a second of part two, which means you need to come on back here tomorrow night. TGIT is in reruns. Nobody cares about the football game. Tomorrow night, you need to be right here. Same bat time, same bat channel. And I'm telling you right now, if you think all the tea got spilled in tonight's episode, this was just the pregame warm-up, kids. Thursday night. 10 p.m. Eastern, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz for more fun and frolic with the magnificently peerless Michael Logan. Uh, as for me, that's a wrap. One more episode of Brandon's Buzz in the can. If you're listening, you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz is home base for this series right here, Brandon's Buzz. Uh, from there, you can see what is on the show, what has been on the show, what is coming on the show. You can leave comments. You can send me emails. It really is mission control for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Uh, you can also find me in my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page is a blue button marked radio. You click that button. That takes you to a full radio archive. Every episode of this show uh, archived in the radio archive page at brandonsbuzz.com. This is episode number 99. This and all previous 98, all in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. I'm also on iTunes, guys. You can find me on iTunes. Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the Puzzle Piece colorful logo, click on that. That takes you to a full listing. Every episode of this show is on iTunes for download. You can download individual old episodes as podcasts, MP3 podcasts at that, for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they hit the store. So I'm all over the place. I'm on iTunes. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm telling you, Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction. And as always, I appreciate you guys coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me. And I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Tomorrow night, guys, part two of this 100-episode spectacular with the brilliant Michael Logan. Be there on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind. So spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon Buzz, the place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. 
Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.